You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I, Catherine, servant and slave of the servants of Jesus Christ, write to thee in his precious blood with desire to see you arise from the lukewarmness of your heart, lest thou be spewed from the mouth of God hearing this rebuke. Cursed are ye the lukewarm, which you have at least been ice cold. This lukewarmness proceeds from ingratitude, which comes from a faint light that does not let us see the agonising and utter love of Christ crucified, and the infinite benefits received from him. For in truth did we see them, our heart would burn with the flame of love, and we should be famished for time, using it with great zeal for the honour of God and the salvation of souls. To this zeal I summon thee, dearest son, that now we begin to work anew. I send thee a letter I am writing to the lords and one to the company of the Virgin Mary. See and understand them, and then give them, and then talk to them fully concerning this matter that is concerned in the letter, begging each them on behalf of Christ crucified, and me, that they deal zealously, just so far as they can, with the Lord's and whoever has to do with it, that the right thing may be done in regard to Holy Church and the Vicar of Christ, Urban VI. It weighs upon me very much for my part, that it should please them to have confidence in this matter, for the honour of God and the spiritual and temporal profit of the city. Do thou be fervent and not tepid in this activity, and in quickening thy brothers and elders of the company to do all they may in the affair of which I write. If you are what you ought to be, you will set fire to all Italy. Letter from Catherine Siena to Stefano Marconi, 1378. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.10, Catherine of Siena, Setting the World on Fire. Last time, we introduced Catherine of Siena, a charismatic, if somewhat troubled young woman from the Italian city of Siena in the late 14th century. Her childhood was marked by her constant search for quiet and contemplation, while her expressions of faith, 
saw her body ravaged by her insufficient consumption of food and self-flagellation. When she became an adult, she became a Mantellate sister and cultivated a number of followers and fame within her city and across Italy. Her support for the Pope and his Guelph faction within Italy saw her compete for the hearts and minds of Italian cities and citizens, with the rising popularity of the Ghibellines led by the cities of Florence and Milan. When we left off last time, her attempts to secure peace had failed, leading her to berate the then-Pope Gregory for his inaction, and northern Italy was on the brink of war. Today, we will see her fame and influence grow, leading her to the papal court itself in Avignon, and the heat of the ruptures that would lead to the Great Schism. But before we get going with that, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also find the show on Facebook and on Twitter as well. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Her preaching of a crusade and correspondence with the Pope and advocacy for his cause in Italy had raised Catherine's profile to new heights in the mid-1370s. And while her supporters were at pains to say that all this fame hadn't affected her, it's probably not surprising that this coincided with another one of her famous encounters with the Divine. While at a mass in Pisa, she slipped into an ecstatic state. She was face down on the church floor and then sat bolt upright before suddenly pitching forward as if receiving a mortal wound. When she came to, she told onlookers that a vision of Jesus had visited her during her prayers, who was descending down from the cross. Rays of blood shot forth from wounds on his hands, feet and breast, striking Catherine in the same positions. She said this was incredibly painful, though it left no physical mark. This is what is known as the stigmata, the appearance of wounds inflicted on Jesus on someone else's body. This is pretty rare, and further marked Catherine out as someone special, chosen by the divine. As a woman of non-noble birth, Catherine needed to prove her authority on matters spiritual far more than others. And the stigmata, along with the other stories of her visions, helped to enhance her legend and draw ever greater support from the faithful. And she did have a lot of support, and this is well shown through her backing of a man called Niccolò di Toldo. He was a man in the service of a Sienese senator, who was firmly in the pro-papal camp. Niccolò had made some ill-judged remarks about how the city of Siena was being run, which got him tried and sentenced to death. Catherine, who was in Pisa at the time, dropped everything and rushed back to her home city to speak to Niccolò and offer him comfort. He was filled with rage and with fear, but her preaching of the faith and promise of eternal peace at God's side melted all of that away. He became serenely calm and asked her to be with him at his time of execution, which she agreed. The next day, she got there ahead of him, and before the vast crowd, she climbed onto the scaffold. I want you to stop for a moment and imagine this scene. This thin, pale, 28-year-old woman 
famed for her piety and in her Dominican habit, placing her head on the block and praying in front of a huge crowd. Thousands saw it, and it made a huge impression. When Niccolò arrived and joined him at the scaffold, she spoke with him for a moment, before helping him down to meet his maker. When the axe fell and cut off his head, her clothes were splattered with his blood. This episode, known to theologians as an example of erotic mysticism, a complex subject I sadly don't have time to explain, not only further associated Catherine with the pro-papal cause, but also as a symbol of resurrection. She accompanied a dying man and made him see the light of God, turning a sinner into a kind of martyr. She was, in effect, God's proxy on earth, another very bold association for her to make. And of course, now everyone in the city either saw this act of faith and love, or would have heard about it. Catherine abhorred violence, other than crusady violence, of course, and so used this fame to position herself as the mediator between the two sides of the brewing Italian war that I discussed at the end of the last episode. She urged Florence, the leader of the Ghibellines, not to make war on the Pope, writing, quote, I beg you, by the ineffable love with which God created you, and so kindly redeemed you, to bring about peace and unity between yourselves and Holy Church, so that you and all of Tuscany may not be endangered. It does not seem to me that war is so lovely a thing that we should go running after it when we can prevent it. Her efforts, though, were in vain. And in 1376, war broke out, with Florence and her allies throwing out political representatives of the Pope. Gregory responded by placing Florence under interdict, basically banishing them from the church. Catherine, still determined to play peacemaker, travelled to Florence at the behest of some followers in the city and met with its leaders to discuss what terms they could agree to in order to de-escalate the crisis. Following those meetings, she set off to Avignon, ahead of an official Florentine embassy, to see if she could butter the Pope up a bit and make him amenable to a peaceful solution. She arrived in the papal capital by boat and was deeply unimpressed with what she found. She viewed the papal presence in Provence as a symbol of the spiritual decline of Christendom and an erosion of the very soul of the church. She claimed to be able to smell the very sin of venal corruption. She met Pope Gregory soon after arriving and quickly impressed him and his cardinals. He had been a little unsettled by the familiarity and the criticism contained in her letters, but was quickly won over, as so many others had been, by the force of her personality. She urged him to hear out the Florentines, saying that they had a framework for peace that he could agree to. However, when the Florentines actually arrived, they disavowed Catherine, saying she had no right to speak on their behalf. The peace talks collapsed acrimoniously, with both sides offering terms that were designed to be rejected. Luckily, though, Catherine had not only come to Avignon in her garb as peacemaker, because she was also there to try and persuade the Pope to return to Rome. Gregory had already publicly committed himself to returning when he took office, but he had made minimal effort to actually do the deed. Such a move had brought about the end of his predecessor's pontificate, and it was still fraught with danger. In particular, he was worried for his personal safety, and confided in Catherine that he thought he would be killed if he went back to Rome. Catherine, who thought very little of her own personal safety, told him, essentially, 
to grow a pair. He was the Pope. He had the power to do what he thought was God's will. In one letter to him, she wrote, quote, Don't make light of the works of the Holy Spirit that are being asked of you. You can do them if you want to. You can see that justice is done. You can have peace if you will put aside the world's perverse pretensions and pleasures. Don't make it necessary for me to complain about you to Christ. I've said this before, but this is quite extraordinarily forward of Catherine. Not only is she more or less telling the Pope what to do, she's also presuming an ability to essentially tell on the Pope to Jesus Christ himself. To anyone, let alone a woman, to claim this kind of intimate relationship with the Son of God is really quite something. Her force of persuasion was so strong that later that year, in September 1376, Pope Gregory took her advice and set sail for Italy. Catherine also departed, taking a different route, arriving in the port city of Genoa a few weeks later. The Pope's ships arrived soon after, having had a torrid journey battered by storms and sickness. The voyage had been so bad that the cardinals, many of whom had never been on board with returning to Italy, told the Pope that this was God's way of telling him to turn back and return to Avignon. Gregory was torn and looked to Catherine for advice, for her strength of conviction and certainty in the direction of God's will. So, he put on a disguise, slipped off his ship in the middle of the night, and arrived at Catherine's doorstep. She let him in, and with only Raymond of Capua for company, they went into a room and shut the door behind them. This meeting was so secret that Raymond of Capua admitted it from his biography of Catherine, and neither spoke of it publicly but the trip itself could never be kept a total secret, and so word got out, which is why we know about it. So often a vacillator, Gregory had turned to Catherine as his rock, as his comfort and stay. She gave him the certainty when he needed it, and convinced him he was doing the right thing. And by doing so, she changed the course of history. The next morning, the two went their separate ways, with Catherine returning to Siena with a new project to fulfil. She wants to found her own women's monastery. Gregory went to Rome to re-establish the papacy's presence in the Eternal City. Catherine's reason for wanting to found a monastery was simple. She had a lot of female followers, but their options were limited if they wanted to take their spiritual lives to the next level, as they would have to join a religious order that would not be guided by Catherine's hand. She wants to found a religious house where she could set the rules and guide the next generation of the faithful. She had no desire to actually live there long term. Her purpose in life was now far too itinerant for that. But this could be the place where she could make a real lasting impact. She had gained the approval of the Pope while at Avignon, and so founded Santa Maria degli Angeli in an old castle in Belcaro, just outside the city of Siena. Unfortunately, we don't actually know much about what this monastery was like, but we do know that she struggled with the recruitment. This, possibly, had something to do with the fact that the region was in the centre of the very war she had spent so much effort trying to prevent. For complex reasons that I won't get into, this has become known to history as the War of the Eight Saints, and it was a bloody affair. Captured cities were looted, prisoners executed, and civilians pillaged. In one infamous incident, the city of Cesena was sacked by soldiers loyal to the Pope's lieutenant, 
Cardinal Robert of Geneva, raping women and killing as many as 5,000, including children. This massacre did not waver Catherine from her support of the Pope, but it did shake her to the core, and she pleaded with Gregory to control his troops and secure a negotiated settlement. She wrote to him, quote, I don't see how, with these disastrous wars, you can have a single hour of good. What belongs to the poor is being eaten up to pay soldiers, who in turn devour people as if they were meat. She also wrote letters to political prisoners in the city, who had been arrested on trumped-up charges of treason just because they opposed the war. While Pope Gregory pleaded for her to join him in Rome, Catherine was not yet willing to do so sending her confessor, Raymond of Capua, in her stead. This was because, now that her monastery had been founded, she had another new project in mind that would cement her legacy. She wanted to write a book. In it, she would pour all of her philosophy, all of the wisdom she had gained from her short, extraordinary life, all of the messages she had been communicating from the divine. It would not be an autobiography, it would be, in the words of her modern biographer, quote, like the voice of God echoing in her soul. God would be the narrator, not she, for the people would surely listen to him rather than a mere mortal woman. This book, which would become known as Il Diagolo, or The Dialogue, was written down by her secretaries, who took down a stream of consciousness while she was in a state of ecstasy, what Raymond of Capua called, quote, a dialogue between a soul and the Lord. The dialogue was, in many ways, the culmination of her life's work. In it, Catherine asks four questions of God, who enlightens her with truths, which she then communicates to her secretaries. The process of putting it all together took about a year, though some have argued that this was largely an issue of editing. The actual first draft might have come together in as little as five days. But the violence in the world beyond could not escape her attention forever. An uneasy truce had been agreed between the warring sides, and both agreed to Catherine being sent to Florence to secure a lasting peace. This was very much in Catherine's wheelhouse, and so she left for Florence, arriving there in January 1378. She wasn't there as an official ambassador, as a mere woman that would be most improper, but everyone knew that she spoke with the Pope's voice. That said, she actually found the going very hard in Florence, and made very little progress in securing the peace. The issue seems to be that while she was very good at commanding a crowd and making waves, her abilities were somewhat limited when it came to diplomacy. However, all this became moot, as shocking news came a couple of months later in March. The Pope was dead. He had been taken ill and had died before his doctors could work out what to do. The Pope was dead. Long live the Popes. We discussed how the death of Pope Gregory led to the Western Schism in episode 4.8, but it is worth repeating, as Catherine would see it very differently from Joanna. The Italian cardinals took advantage of divisions within the French camp to elect one of their number, the Neapolitan Archbishop of Bari, as Urban VI. He was a candidate right after Catherine's own heart. He was committed to decorrupting the church and reforming it to its purer past. However, his methods were entirely lacking in tact or diplomacy, news that Raymond of Capua, who had remained in Rome, passed on to Catherine. She was still busy finishing her book, 
and was committed to finishing it, meaning that she could do little to prevent the divisions in the church from cleaving it in two. At Raymond's urging, she wrote to some cardinals whose loyalty to Urban was wavering, urging them to stay the course. But she was in Florence, too far away from the action in Rome, to have a significant influence on these huge events. The election on the 20th of September of a rival pope was a double shock for Catherine. Of course, the hurt she would have felt at this great division in Western Christendom cannot be underestimated, given her commitment to unity and peace. But the man chosen as the rival pope truly appalled her. Robert of Geneva, otherwise known as the Butcher of Cesena, who took the name of Clement VII. No man could have been more offensive to Italians. And it only confirmed to Catherine that, imperfect though he was, Urban was the one true pope who she would be with until death. This loyalty impressed the Holy Father so much that he issued a papal command, ordering her to come to Rome and be by his side. Catherine of Siena was off to the Eternal City. The 14th century had not been a vintage one for Rome. Its population had been depleted by several onsets of plague, and the absence of the papacy during its sequester in Avignon led to many churches falling into disrepair. However, Rome was still Rome, and Catherine was hugely impressed when she entered the city for the first time in November 1378. She was leading a party of 40 of her followers, and they housed themselves near the church of Santa Maria on the Via Lata, a church where St Paul is said to have lived before his execution. There, she was reunited with Raymond of Capua, and together they quickly had an audience with Urban. Her presence did not go unnoticed, and there was no doubting what she had been brought to do. Urban and his followers wanted to use her influence and presence to persuade Clement's followers to switch sides. Now, I think it's fair to say that Catherine's past diplomatic efforts had had, let's be generous and say, mixed success. Her efforts to prevent Italy from descending into war had consistently failed, and her efforts to end the fighting once it had broken out had similarly not been successful. But Urban believed in her, and more to the point, she had a rock-solid belief in her own abilities and faith that she was God's chosen prophet. This is why Urban invited her to come to the Church of Santa Maria and preach to him and his cardinals. That's right, the semi-illiterate daughter of a wool trader was addressing the Holy Father and his court. It's almost unheard of in the entirety of the Middle Ages, an extraordinary honour and reflection of her fame and oratory. Sadly, we don't know what she said, but we do have a review from Urban himself, and it is a positive one, albeit dripping with misogyny. Quote, This weak woman puts us all to shame. I call her a weak woman not to make little of her, but I want to emphasise that she is a woman and belongs to the weaker sex. By nature, it is she who should feel fear, even in situations where we would feel no danger. But on the contrary, it is we who play the coward while she stands undaunted and by her rousing words imparts to us her own courageous spirit. Urban needed people like Catherine, true believers willing to do anything, even die for the church. 
people who saw things in black and white. The incorruptible. The unimpeachably pious. The first mission that Urban had in mind for Catherine was to go to Naples. Despite him being a Neapolitan and most of her people siding with him, Joanna had sided with Pope Clement. Catherine had previously been on good terms with the Queen of Naples, writing to her regularly about them going on crusade together. Urban thought a personal visit, a meeting woman to woman, might bring her around. Catherine was extremely excited by the prospect. Raymond of Capua was incredibly not. He had heard the stories, exaggerated of course, of the dangers and violence of Joanna's court. She'd had her first husband strangled, didn't you know? This was no place for the fragile Catherine of Siena. He persuaded Urban to call off the visit, infuriating Catherine. Her personal safety had never been a particular priority for her. If she was to die in the cause of the righteous, then so be it. A martyr's death held no fear for her. She scolded Raymond, quote, Your reasonings are worthless. They come from your lack of faith and not from the genuine virtue of prudence. With the possibility of a face-to-face meeting scuppered, she had to resort to writing Joanna a sternly worded letter. And boy, oh boy, did she not mince her words. I've been saving this one since the series on Joanna. It's an extremely long letter, so I will give you the highlights. Quote, Dearest Mother, Insofar as you are a lover of truth and obedient to Holy Church, I call you Mother, but in no otherwise, nor do I speak to you with reverence, because I see a great change in your person. You, who are a lady, have made yourself a servant and slave of that which is not, having submitted yourself to falsehood and to the devil who is its father, abandoning the counsels of the Holy Spirit and accepting the counsels of incarnate demons. You who are a branch of the true vine have cut yourself off from it with the knife of self-love. You who are a legitimate daughter, tenderly beloved of her father, the vicar of Christ on earth, Pope Urban VI, who is really the Pope, the highest pontiff, have divided yourself from the bosom of your mother, Holy Church, where for so long a time you have been nourished. What greater shame can be incurred than that of one who was a Christian, how to be a Catholic and virtuous woman, should act like a Christian who denies her faith and depart from good and holy customs and the due reverence she has observed. Open the eye of your mind and sleep no more in such great misery. Do not await the moment of death, after which it will not help you to make excuses, nor to say, I thought to do good. You know that you are ill, but like a sick and passionate woman, you let yourself be guided by your passions. You should not be so ignorant nor so separated from the true light as not to know the wicked life, with no fear of God, of those who have led you into so great heresy. Where is the just man whom they have chosen for antipope, if indeed our highest pontiff, Pope Urban VI, were not the true vicar of Christ? What man have they chosen? A man of holy life? No, but an iniquitous man, a demon, and therefore he does the work of demons. The devil exerts himself to withdraw us from the truth, and he does the very same thing. Why did they not choose a just man? Because they knew well enough that a just man would have chosen death rather than to have accepted the papacy, since he would have seen no colour of truth in them. Therefore the demons took the demon, and the liars the lie. 
The truth shall set you free from lie. It shall scatter all shadows, giving you light and knowledge and the mercy of God. In this truth you shall be freed. In otherwise, never. The love which I bear to you makes me speak with boldness. The fault which you have committed makes me depart from due reverence and speak irreverently. I wish I could for rather to tell you the truth by speech than by writing, for your salvation and chiefly for the honour of God. I would far rather deal in deeds rather than in words with him who is to blame for it all. Although the blame and the reason is in yourself, since there is no one, either demon nor creature, who can force you to the least fault unless you choose. Therefore I said it to you, that you are the cause of it. Bathe you in the blood of Christ crucified. The clouds of self-love, servile fear, and the poison of hate and self-scorn are scattered. I say no more to you. I'll just give you a moment to catch your breath there. This is not a letter written in a diplomatic tone. There are no niceties here. It employs the language of what she called holy fear, warning Joanna that she was on the wrong side of this conflict and that her punishment would be eternal damnation. Her threats and warnings are couched in a kind of compassion, for if her words brought Joanna round the side of God and the true Pope, then who would question her means? Of course, though, her efforts to bring Joanna around failed, as we know. She remained in Clement's camp, and of course it would be her downfall. Catherine then settled into her familiar battery of letter-writing in support of Urban's cause. But once again it seems that it all had limited effect. The divisions that had caused the schism were so deep-set and the actors so committed in their course, that some letters from a holy woman on the subject of faith were never going to have a huge impact. By the start of 1379, the letters stop being about peace and start to become about money. The schism required mercenaries and a great diplomatic offensive, neither of which came cheap. Moreover, the split in Christendom meant that Urban no longer had money coming in from schismatic areas such as France and Spain. Urban needed to collect on the papacy's debts, and the city-states of Tuscany were behind on their payments. He therefore tapped Catherine to act as his debt collector, to write to the city elders to remind them of what they owed and the vital cause to which they were denying funds. To Florence, for instance, she wrote, quote, Now you see the Pope in such great need, and not only are you not helping him, you are paying no attention to what you had promised. You are showing yourselves very ungrateful. Indeed, this whole period doesn't paint Catherine in a particularly honourable light. For example, she egged on King Louis of Hungary in his dispute with his relative, Queen Joanna of Naples, saying that he must disregard his family ties. She also lambasted Raymond of Capua when he failed to make it into France to send a message to its king from Urban. She wrote, quote, You ought to be dead, but aren't, so make an effort to kill yourself with the knife of hatred and love, so that you won't hear the mockery, vilification, and reproach the world and the persecutors of the Holy Church may choose to give you. This outburst indicates just how much of a toll events were taking on her. Every day she would walk with her followers from her home to St Peter's and spend the whole day at work. When she got home, she would be joined by crowds of pilgrims for dinner, and of course, she herself ate very little. Her health, always fragile thanks to the torment she put it through, was beginning to fail, and the anxiety caused by the schism only hastened 
the inevitable. At the start of 1318, in the words of one of her followers, food and water became, quote, loathsome to her. Even when she described her thirst as being so bad that, quote, her breath seemed to be fire, she refused to drink. She knew that her end was coming, and spent her last remaining days writing letters to her followers and friends, giving them instructions on what they should do after she passed on. One of the last letters we have from her was to Pope Urban. Quote, Dearest and sweetest father in Christ, sweet Jesus, I, Catherine, your poor, unworthy daughter, write to you with great desire to see a prudence and sweet light of truth in you. In such wise I may see you follow the glorious St. Gregory and govern Holy Church with such prudence that it may never be necessary to take back anything which may be ordered or done by your holiness. I pray the inestimable charity of God that he clothe your soul in this, for it seems to me that light and prudence are very necessary indeed to us, and especially to your holiness, and to anyone else who might be in your place, most chiefly in these current times. Be you manful for me, in the holy fear of God, wholly exemplary in your words, your habits, and all your needs. Let all shine clear in the sight of God and men, as a light place in the candlestick of holy church, to which looks and should look all the Christian people. Recall to yourself the disaster that befell all Italy, because bad rulers were not guarded against, who governed in such wise that they were the cause of the church of God being despoiled. I know you are aware of this. Now let your holiness see what is to be done. Comfort you, and comfort you sweetly, for God does not despise your desire, nor the prayer of his servants. I say no more to you. Remain in the holy and sweet grace of God. To the last, she was trying to inspire and advise the Pope, a man who, quite frankly, did not deserve the adulation and attention placed upon him by Catherine. In late February, she collapsed on the way back from St Peter's. She never regained the use of her legs and was bedridden. One of her followers described her as being, quote, internally and externally tormented. One by one, her followers heard the news that their prophet was dying and flooded into Rome to see her one last time. In her last words of advice, she told them, quote, Love one another, my dearest children. Love one another. She died on the 29th of April at around noon, aged just 33. Her funeral was a huge public event in the city. Thousands viewed her body before burial, and the throng was so large that the priest couldn't make himself heard to deliver his eulogy. After a few vain attempts, he conceded, quote, This holy virgin has no need of our preaching. She preached sufficiently herself. Catherine of Siena lived an extraordinary life, one that straddled theology and politics. She had spent her entire adult life in the pursuit of Christian peace and fellowship, yet spent her final days trying to unite one half of Christendom against the other. Yet her popularity never wavered amongst the people, and this was aided by the publication in 1395 of Raymond of Capua's biography of her. Well, I say biography, it was more a thesis on why she should become a saint, and it wasn't long before miracles became associated with her, adding credence to the call. Then, as now, achieving sainthood required a ton of bureaucratic wrangling, and so it wasn't until the mid-15th century that Pope Pius II, a Sienese by birth, 
confirmed her as St. Catherine of Siena, with her feast day being the day of her death, the 29th of April. She was further honoured in 1940, when she, along with St. Francis of Assisi, were named patrons of the church in Italy, and then again in 1970, when she was named as the first female doctor of the church. Her theological impact is extraordinary, and I've not done any justice to it in these episodes, as I was more interested in her temporal life. In just over 30 years, this illiterate daughter of a wool dyer achieved a remarkable degree of influence, was known and respected by kings, queens and popes. She was called on to end wars and heal divides, and though she was not hugely successful in doing so, her rise to that influence is almost unprecedented. But really, today, she is mainly known for her quotes, the most famous of which comes from the letter that I read at the very start of the episode. Quote, If you are what you ought to be, you will set fire to all Italy. Or, as it's better known, be who God meant you to be, and you will set the world on fire. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.